The following sermon was delivered by Senior Pastor Reverend Dr. Scott Black Johnston in the sanctuary of Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church in New York City. We welcome you to worship with us every Sunday in person or on live stream. For details, go to FAPC.org. And now, here's Reverend Dr. Scott Black Johnston. This winter, Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church is taking five weeks to explore the nature of beloved community, the evocative vision that is central to the writings and preachings of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Last week, we began our study by examining this country's motto, e pluribus unum, out of many, one. We talked about the sacred hopes that are evoked by that Latin phrase and the challenge of making those hopes real in a moment of intense political acrimony and national division. After acknowledging these realities, we pivoted to consider both the writings of Dr. King and the Apostle Paul. And with their help, we observed that Jesus, in his life and his ministry, casts a vision for a community in which the love of God draws people of very different perspectives and backgrounds together. We, we admitted that it's typically the saints, people like Mother Teresa and Dr. King, who have embraced this path. These folk go all in on love. The rest of us tend to hedge our bets. And there we paused. We imagined what it might mean in this tumultuous time for us to give our hearts over to love. Now, whenever preachers describe love as the foundation of Christian faith and ethics, there are thoughtful souls out there who will express concern to us. Yes, yes, preacher, love is a good thing. Who doesn't want to be surrounded by love, perfumed by love? But, but, but isn't this the time to get serious. The world's a mess. The powers of darkness and corruption are real. Do you really think that love is an adequate response to, to all the awfulness out there in the world and in here in the human heart? Deep down, many of us have love pegged as a sort of rose-colored glasses emotion, a sort of breezy, naive, accept everyone, have no standards, wag your tail and roll over in the face of evil virtue. As such, when we reach into our moral toolbox in these precarious times, love is a tool that we can grab turn over in our hand, and then toss back into the box because love feels to us like a weak choice. I think we see love as a weak moral posture for two reasons. First, 
most of us do not really believe that love can be an effective agent for change. Toss me the pipe wrench of passion, the pry bar of structural demolition, demolition, the hammer of justice, the, the ratchet of clear argumentation. These hefty tools will move the needle. Love? Well, preacher, love is nice. <laughs> I tell you what, after everything is fixed, we'll scoop up a few bowls full of love and pass them around. We act like love is a dessert. <laughs> Love comes after the hard work is done. In this rough and tumble world, love strikes us as a risky opening move. And, and that conclusion brings us to the second reason that we fret over the moral power of love. Deep down, we worry that love is going to ask us to set aside our convictions. We, we fear that the social demands of love will soften and, and possibly silence our most passionate concerns, our, our desire for justice, our sense of what is right and wrong. And this, I have to tell you, is not entirely off track. Love will change us. This fact leads to a whole slew of, of follow-up questions. If I dive into beloved community, will I still be me? <laughs> or will I sell out? Will the beloved community ask me to shelve my passionate sense of what is right and wrong? Will it value smooth water over the fight for justice? Will, will love sand my passions down to, to a nub? Will it make me sit on my hands, zip my lip? These are good questions. Great questions. Let's engage them. And to do so, let's turn our attention to the good book and today's passage from Romans. Now, fair warning, my friends, this is a short text. It packs a lot into two quick verses, but listen carefully for God's word to you because it's gonna go whizzing on by as it echoes to us from Romans chapter 12, beginning with verse nine. Let love be genuine. Hate what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with mutual affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. This is the word of God for you, the people of God. Thanks be to God. In today's passage, the Apostle Paul describes the ethics of beloved community. He offers instructions for how Christians ought to behave with each other, and he begins with an exhortation, let love be genuine. Now, this is an interesting and almost cheeky kind of challenge, let love be genuine. I say cheeky because 
Paul implies that there's love out there that's not genuine, not heartfelt, not real. No fake in it, Paul admonishes. Be passionate and honest and steadfast in pursuing love. And then Paul pivots to suggest that Christians also ought to be passionate and honest and steadfast in abhorring what is evil. Hate what is evil, says the apostle. These are strong words, maybe controversial words to you. Are Christians allowed to hate? Allowed? <laughs> According to Paul, we're not simply allowed, but we're required <laughs> to hate evil. You ought to have a visceral response, the apostle argues, to unjust behaviors and systems. Your attitude toward evil should not be, well, I can turn my back on it, avoid it, run from it. Instead, you ought to have such a passionate response to evil that you must, you simply must push back against it, seek to counter it. In today's brief passage, Paul puts a pretty complex challenge in front of the beloved community. Did you hear it? We need to exhibit love, genuine love, toward each other and toward the world that God loves. And at the same time, we need to push back against evil in our day-to-day -day interactions with society's great conflicts we must joust with evil and stay astride the horse of love. Can you do both at the same time? Well, this is certainly the posture that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. worked to maintain and model during the civil rights movement. In his letter from the Birmingham jail, King wrote, this is a passage you probably are going to be familiar with, he who passively accepts evil is as much involved in it as he who helps to perpetrate it. He who accepts evil without protesting against it is really cooperating with it. King never equivocated when it came to opposing evil. People of faith could not, should not ever accept evil as a norm, as inevitable, as a, as a not my problem fact of life. At the same time, King knew that if the faithful were to set aside love, genuine love in our conflict with evil, it would prove our undoing. And in this, King was adamant. We cannot, in the great struggle for justice and peace, for human dignity and equal opportunity, resort to the tactics used by the powers of darkness. We cannot bend the truth to serve our cause. We cannot resort to or condone violence as a solution to disagreements or perceived injustice. And here the Apostle Paul agrees. As we face evil, as we're drawn into storms of controversy and conflict, 
Paul makes an impassioned plea to early Christians. It's right there in our text. Hold fast, he says. Hold fast to the good. On the cover of today's bulletin, you'll find the picture of a man's hands, the fingers of which are tattooed with the words, hold fast. Hold fast is a tattoo popularized by fishermen, members of the merchant marine, the Coast Guard, and of course, sailors in the world's navies. For hundreds of years, hold fast has been the tattoo of choice on the knuckles of deckhands. The location of this ink was key. It served as a written reminder that, that letting go of a rope could lead to bad consequences for shipmates, should rigging fall or, or sails precariously swing, or for the sailor, him or herself, who could be swept overboard in rough seas. Indeed, some sailors have testified that staring at this tattoo during fierce storms focused their attention and strengthened their grip. In the same manner, the apostle encourages us, hold fast to the good. I think there are two spiritual reasons that we ought to tattoo hold fast on our hearts. First, in times like this, our souls are at stake. We will be tempted to embrace the tactics of darkness, to hold onto the wrong things, and in so doing, unwittingly become allies of evil. Far too many people embrace awful behavior, excuse their own awful behavior, simply because they say they have prioritized beating their enemies over holding fast to the good. Second, Holding fast to the good in stormy times is critically important if you want to be effective, if you actually want to make a difference. Now the algebra here probably seems counterintuitive to us, but it's actually quite simple. Slinging mud, canceling others, bending the truth, doing whatever it takes to win, does not ultimately work, does not bend the world toward justice. If you want to be effective, go with love, because you know what? Love works. In one of his most famous sermons, Loving Your Enemies, Dr. King preached, returning hate for hate multiplies hate, adding deeper darkness to a night already devoid of stars. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that.
Is King right? Is this, is this stuff true? Are the tactics of love really the only effective option that we have in changing hearts and minds when people are immersed in angry cultural fights? Or is beloved community simply a preacher's impossible dream? This past Monday, I took a train down to Baltimore to spend a day with my former teacher and mentor and current friend, Tom Long. The hours flew by as we talked and laughed and considered the many challenges faced by the Church of Jesus Christ in these precarious times. At one point in our conversations together, Tom told me a story. He told me many stories, but this is the story I'm going to tell to you today. It's the story of a Presbyterian elder in one of the local parishes in Baltimore who went to talk to his pastor about his frustration over the fact that the wider Presbyterian denomination had voted to permit the ordination of LGBTQ persons as clergy. The elder was calm and cordial. As he sat down with his pastor, he said, I'm not angry. I'm just heartbroken. I feel like my church has left me. And so now, sadly, I must leave my church. I and my family have been part of this community for four generations. I'm going to miss the people here, but it's time to cut ties. And with that, he began to cry. The pastor shed some tears too, and then they prayed together, and that was that. The next week, this elder began his search for a new church. He planned a rigorous process based on careful research, although since this was week one, he decided to make it easy and start local. The man went to the small but seemingly active Baptist church only about a half mile from his home there in Baltimore, entering the sanctuary at Second Baptist. The man was pleased to see a vibrant and ethnically diverse congregation. When the service started, they sang his favorite hymn. (laughs) During a rousing sermon, the preacher engaged scripture in a reverent and relevant manner. It was a solid word. Wow, thought the visitor, week one of my search and I've struck solid gold. After the service, the visiting Presbyterian went up to talk to the Baptist preacher. He, He complimented the pastor on the service and then proceeded to tell his story. The man explained that he'd recently left a nearby congregation over issues related to human sexuality. Happily, though, he felt like he'd already found a new home at Second Baptist. Good sir, the Baptist preacher warmly responded, you are so welcome here. But first, I should probably introduce you to my partner, Joe. (laughs) 
the next week that elder was back sitting in his usual pew at the Presbyterian Church. The pastor there greeted him after worship with a surprised smile. And at this, the elder chuckled and described his visit to Second Baptist. He said, you know, pastor, last Sunday after worshiping with those kind Baptists, I walked out to my car and exclaimed, okay, I hear you, Lord. I get the message. I'm going home. I love this story. I love it for so many reasons. It's a story of mercy and compassion. It's a story of people seeking to chart a moral path amidst disagreement. It's not, however, a story of scorched earth tactics or anyone trying to cancel anyone else's. It's a story about strong convictions that evolve in the light of love. And for this reason, it's a story of Christian hope. Hope that the human heart can grow when we engage each other with gentleness. It's also a story about the complicated dynamics that exist between individuals and churches. When we become part of a church like these new members, we flavor the community. And the beloved community flavors us back. And this melding of flavors can feel uncomfortable at at times. It changes both the individual and the community. But it's in the midst of this change, I believe, that the Spirit of God works her magic. In fact, that's the testimony of our faith. The Spirit of God weaves tapestries of hope out of our personal convictions and the beliefs and attitudes of the beloved community. Tapestries that help us define and refine and ever more tightly cling to what is good. Members of the beloved community, as you go forth from this place, as you go out into this world, have courage, hold fast to what is good. Do not return evil for evil. Strengthen the faint-hearted, support the weak, help the suffering, honor all people, Love and serve the Lord. Amen. We hope this sermon has been meaningful to you and given you a measure of hope, encouragement, and good news. If you would like to make a donation to support this audio ministry, please visit fapc.org give. Thank you and blessings to you on this day.